0: Welcome to Henslow's Innovator Series, where we sit down with founders and CEOs from some of Australia's most exciting and emerging companies to find out more about their growth stories, ambitions, and lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Jesse Levin, and today I'm joined by Jared Holland, co-founder and CEO of InternMatch. Thanks for having me Jesse. After starting his career as an accountant in financial services he went on to found Outcome Life which we now know as InternMatch a global workforce edtech platform facilitating employment through internships. Jared, welcome to the Innovator Series. I thought I'd start with a bit of an icebreaker and given your presence in employment and jobs what was your first job and what did you learn from it?
1: I was a basketball referee so I think I was 12 started working as a ref. used to get dropped off at Keeler Park Stadium. I'd stay up there the afternoon and would referee games all day. And that was how I earned my first money.
0: Great. You might've ref me back in the day.
1: Yeah. And, and what I learned from that too, I, I remember being pretty young and you, you do the under 10s, under 12s, and then eventually you get told to do like an under 16s game. Mm. And it's, so being like a 13, 14 year old and you're refereeing you know you're the authority over 16 year olds probably that didn't know at the time but probably really good experience and learnings in doing that because you have to grow up and you know you got to show a bit of presence when you're a referee in any sport because you're literally telling kids a lot older than you what to do and they don't hold back particularly the parents in giving you a spray
0: yeah definitely so you started at pitcher partners you spent a 12 or 13 years there. And that's where you met your co-founder, who's about 15 years, your senior. Can you speak to that experience and how you met him?
1: Yeah. So we, I, th- I think I was at Pitches for, for 10 years with a mm. two-year break where I worked in London in investment banking for a little bit. Yep. Never want to do that again. And Dom, uh, my now business partner, he was at Pitches, but 10 years before me. So I never ever met him before. Right. And the story of actually how I did meet him, you create your own luck in a way, right? So I remember being... Pitchers have this, and anyone from Pitcher Partners listening to this that's been there in the last 15 years will know the uh, the grand final eve lunch they used to have. I think, I don't know which premier bought in the um, public holiday before grand final. Someone bought it in and it ruined that whole lunch. So, but I was back in the days that the lucky people would go to that lunch. I remember Steven Schomburg, one of the partners had come out of his office. I was sitting out in the bays. I was like an assistant manager or something. And Shoni said, my client's just pulled out. Do you want to come? Mm. And no assistant manager ever went to this lunch. It was all directors and yeah. partners and I thought, oh, all right. Um, yeah, sure, of course I will, yeah. So, you know, tried to find a tire from someone and, and went on down to this lunch. Felt very out of place because I probably shouldn't have been there. And I sat next to this guy, Dom. And I remember saying to Dom, "Wow, well, you, you quit pitches to go and start a business. are pretty brave, aren't you? Yeah. And he, he just had a drink of his beer and he spat it out. <laughs> he goes, you reckon I'm brave? You reckon I'm brave? You're relying on these guys. And he's pointing at all the partners in the room. You're relying on them for your job. (laughs) I'm responsible for my job. He goes, you're brave by going back to that job tomorrow. oh, that's a bit dramatic. yeah, and and so obviously because I remember it now, it, it, it had an impact. But it was years later, I was doing my Masters of Entrepreneurship and Innovation that Pitches was, was mm. doing because they wanted their staff to be more entrepreneurial because Pitches in the middle market and all their clients are entrepreneurs. But accountants, you, you get innovation and mm. on entrepreneurial thinking beaten out of you. Yeah, of course. And so I had to interview an entrepreneur and Dom popped up in my mind. So he obviously had an impact good on him. And I uh, I went into Mark, Mark Harrison's office. I knew Mark knew him and I said, look, you know, I want to interview Dom and he gave me his number, called him up. What was a 45 minute interview similar to what we're doing now, went yeah. for an hour and a half, two hours and then after that I'd, I'd caught up with Dom for lunch or coffee mm. every second week and he became a bit of a mentor for me outside of being in an, in an accounting firm. Yeah. And because he was so entrepreneurial and a different thinker, and I just enjoyed catching up with him and hearing what was going on in his world. Then when I wrote a business plan for the Mm. business, he was the first person I flicked it onto. And within five minutes, he called me and he said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. But what do you mean, let's do it? He said, we're going to do it. I'm like, bloody hell, really? And when I reflect on it now, there's no way he read it in five minutes. He literally (laughs) called me that fast. And I even asked him later, I said, did you even read it? He goes, no, just because you were doing it, I was in. Yeah. And that was how it all started, from a random meeting at a lunch that I wasn't supposed to be at and then just maintaining a relationship. Yeah, great. So
0: you mentioned that Dom believed in you in the early stage. Can you talk about what that meant to you and your partnership?
1: I didn't realise until years later that the people side of entrepreneurship. So when we raised our first funding, the 553,000, I'd emphasised the three because my little brother had $6,000 in his bank account and he gave three to me. That was the last three. So <laughs> it's my favourite 3,000 yeah. we've ever raised, including the, the Henslow raise we've done now. At the time, I thought they loved the business plan that I'd gone and built. And years later, talking to some of the investors that were all the family friends and fools and friends of friends, and all of them said, "Jared, we didn't care about the business plan. We just backed you. Yeah. And it was quite humbling to hear people say that but all of them said we, we believe in you we know the type of person you are and we just think you're someone that'd be able to get it done and Dom was the same I got to know him over many years and when we started the business he says you're going to be the CEO I've done yeah. it before but I believe in you as a person when I was doing my Masters of Entrepreneurship Innovation mm-hmm. they talk about that there's the product and there's the market and it's always the people when you listen to a lot of these type of podcasts investors will often say too it's the people behind the business mm-hmm. and it's 100% true because stuff goes wrong and we, we pivoted our business after 9 months I was scared at the time but in hindsight, it doesn't make a difference because I had to email all our investors and say, you gave us money to do this. I'm now not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do this. And we, we shifted our business a bit, but none of them cared. I didn't get a response. I look back now, it's because people were back to me to go and build yeah. the business, not necessarily about the idea. And Dom was the same.
0: Yeah. And what was that pivot that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, so the, was the,
1: the, the original problem we went to solve was international students deciding where to study. And my original business plan was actually built around that. And it was this education agent market, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. There's actually businesses now, if you look them up, called Adventus, Apply Board, Global Study Partners. They are doing the exact business plan that I wrote in 2015. But we found about nine months in, we thought we're actually focusing on the wrong problem. The problem wasn't getting a degree, the problem was getting a job. And so we we were at the Lincoln Hotel in Carlton having a beer and just contemplating the business. We hadn't earned any revenue. We knew we had to to go and build a platform to go and facilitate this and to be able to go and take on education agents, which is a hugely entrenched market. We weren't going to do that with half a million bucks anyway. Mm. So that was probably one component. But we really thought the problem we're focusing on wasn't the right problem. Yeah. And over a few beers, we said, you know what, we need, to, we need to change our business. We need to focus on the back end of a degree and getting a job instead of being on the front end. Yeah. And that is the best decision we ever made.
0: Yeah, great. So when you and Dom founded the business, did you have an idea of what you wanted the culture
1: to be? When I founded a business, I had no idea about business. So mm-hmm. probably wasn't thinking about that. We never really talked about it, but it's something that I think was embedded in us. That The number one thing for us is we wanted to be a place where people wanted to be. Yeah we didn't pay market rate salaries we didn't have any money to do it so everyone that worked for us got paid less than they could probably get somewhere else so the only lever we had was to be a good place to work and i think that's always been instilled in us is that you know whenever we hear some feedback that someone's unhappy it's important to us it affects us and we want to go and make sure that we're meeting with those people to find out what's going on how do we fix it? Mm-hmm. An example of that is that probably four or five months ago, sitting down with one of my team, and I just asked Swarthia, I said, what's the communication like in this business? And she goes, it's terrible. I go, what do you mean? She says, well, we don't, you know what's going on every day, yeah. but we don't. I thought, okay, I gotta fix that. So now every single Friday, I do a video yeah. and I send it out to all staff. We call it the match report. So to begin with, we wanna make sure we have a great place to work. That's been instilled in us still now. Because to me, if we become known as a place that has a crap culture, that's just devastating. Like, yeah, that's probably the last thing I want to be ever want to be known for. It's hard to build a really good culture. It's easy to lose a good culture, but it's something you need to be conscious of and thinking about. And to be honest, I, particularly in the early years, Dom was the one that probably really drove our culture. Yeah. I was much more outward facing, and Dom was you know, very much looking after staff and spending time with them and is and a bit of a joker, so trying to make it a fun place.
0: Yeah. Great. And, and now as you've grown your team to 70 or so people, how are you looking to maintain the culture?
1: Yeah, so it, it's hard as you grow we got warned about that as we were growing the business we've got a global team now so how do you have the same dna of the business in different locations we've just flown our manager from canada to melbourne for three weeks just to spend time with our melbourne team so soterra can take that yeah. back with her but it's a real challenge as you're adding lots of people to the business because you go from a startup where you know everyone mm. and then you move into a scaling up business where someone's got to think about everyone's name and then it's probably more difficult for the staff to do that transition. I got given some feedback recently that you know, some of the staff feel like they don't know me. Yeah. And I think about, okay, how do I help solve that problem? And I thought, well, I'm out bringing in work yeah. and I'm out dealing with external stakeholders. I don't have time to have a coffee with every staff member. And that's a transition of our business. But staff need to adapt to that as well. It can cause problems, I think, as your culture evolves.
0: Yeah, of course. Now, moving to the education industry, the cost of education is rising rapidly faster than graduate salaries. What sort of challenges do you see rising from
1: that? I think the university is going to face a lot of challenges. People are questioning the value of a four year degree. Mm. You've got institutions that are complacent, I think, in what they're producing. There's the rise of MOOCs, which is massive open online courses. There's companies like General Assembly, Academy XI. And there's lots of them that are doing really good upskilling. The problem I think universities face is that businesses are higher for skills, not for degrees. Mm. Once you're in the workforce, people don't look back anymore about whether you've got a degree. Once you're in there, you're creating value. And this is different to the 80s and 90s, where having a degree was your ticket to the game. You actually couldn't get to the ballpark without it. You actually don't need that anymore. There's alternative pathways. micro credentials are becoming a big yeah. a big topic inside the university sector. I'm not sure they actually do it the best. There's other private providers that are doing that. But I think the universities need to be very careful over the next 10 years as to which ones still became relevant. The Ivy Leagues will always be there. They're not going away. you got the next tier as to whether spending 80000 a $100,000 on a degree... Mm is worth it. In the US, there's less people at university now than there were in the 80s. And yeah. you look at the US is worse, right? Their debts, uh, their yeah, people coming out with $200,000 debts, then can't get a job. So if that's what the scenario is, why not just go and do some upskilling in a boot camp for a few thousand dollars, go and get yeah. your first job, maybe never need to go to university. And I think it's going to be interesting over the next 10 years to watch that. I think one of our biggest clients in the future mm. is probably not going to be universities. It's going to be organisations that are providing upskilling for specific skills that are required. We then bring our process in place to introduce them to the workforce and we bypass it. I mean, we always work the university sector, but they're not a core part of our business in five or 10 years time
0: and do you see more industry players like the google certificate putting out something like that to bring people in
1: there's heaps ey is doing it google's doing it every single day you're hearing about some of these big corporates that are introducing effectively their own university their own qualifications i mean google came out maybe 18 months ago and said you do a six month course with google on software development Mm. and they will hire you as a software developer so you can go and do four years computer science yeah or you can go into the google academy and get a job straight away i mean which one are people going to do so I think, I think corporates have got fed up with what's being produced by the, the university sector in that people aren't job ready, graduates aren't job ready. And so rather than trying to tell the universities, you ought to do this, you got to change, they've said, well, let's just take ownership of it ourselves. And that's a really interesting dynamic that's playing out. Yeah, definitely,
0: definitely. So you just got back from Africa after spending a few weeks there. Firstly, how are you feeling? And what were you doing there?
1: I was more jet lagged on the way in there. I copped, uh, I copped it. The first dinner, I was trying to... Listen to what people were saying. We had a very packed schedule. So, from a business point of view, we we went to Rwanda, Ethiopia, Kenya, and South Africa, moving all the time. Like, we had over 50 meetings with governments, the large NGOs like the MasterCard Foundation and the yeah. Michael and Sue Dell Foundation, meeting with the universities, boot camp providers, meeting with actual talent there as well. Yeah. The talent there has blown me away. From a business perspective, it was absolutely incredible. Far better than I thought it was going to be. There was not one meeting that wasn't overwhelmingly positive. We're now getting chased by governments and NGOs for when we can start getting activated. So there's probably too much interest for us that we've got to work out where we want to be first and which countries we're going to invest in first. From a personal point of view, I said to people when I was over there that I feel almost embarrassed because my perception of Africa was so different to what it was. We've been working with the Mandela Legacy Foundation and Zondwa, who's Nelson and Winnie's grandson, for almost two years Mm. because we were working during COVID in setting up our program and it was the pandemic that has enabled this opportunity. Yeah, of course. We didn't meet Zondwa for two years. We're doing it all over Zoom and eventually got to a point where we're ready to jump on a plane. And I didn't want to go until we had our model right that we're ready to scale. Mm. And the point was now to actually get on a plane and to go. But going to countries like Rwanda, you have this vision in your mind and yeah, it's it's all influenced by the movies, by the news. It is probably the most cleanest city I've ever been to in my life. The last Sunday of every month, they have clean-up day. Every single person, including tourists do it, for four hours in the morning has to go outside and clean. The place is spotless. The roads are amazing. Infrastructure's fantastic. The people are incredible. It's this vibrant city that since 94 post-genocide they have just built this amazing country with really resilient people that are determined and motivated. Addis in Ethiopia, 120 million people. Their university system has worked for the last 15 years. Mm. That 70% of people must do STEM. So you've got 15 years, a population of 120 20 million that have all been studying STEM now there's not enough jobs in Africa right so everyone knows that unemployment is you know 60% for youth it's crazy but it's not that they're not talented people they just don't have the jobs that are there so when we arrive on their doorstep and say well, we'll bring you international jobs and even better your kids don't have to leave they're going to stay here it's like we're we're bringing them this amazing opportunity that they could never have dreamt on it's why they're all chasing us now yeah. but you've got this massive when I was there I just kept saying to people this is a sleeping giant and it's not even asleep anymore this thing is awake mm. and if I could trade with any continent and I only realised this since going there I could trade with any continent over the next 20 years, it is Africa. The opportunity is incredible. Government's are progressive there's a lot of investment going into it so there's lots of money around mm. and I've just been, I mean, I, wanna, I will live in Africa at some point now, I didn't think that a month ago that's crazy. it's yeah. um, but would love to live and not even in South Africa but you know in Rwanda or, or in Kenya, people are lovely and the opportunity there is just amazing so anyone that's listening to this that's thinking about whether they would have business 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 opportunities in Africa get on a plane and go and experience the place because it will blow your mind
0: yeah it's fascinating do you think the rest of the world's woken up to Africa as a sleeping giant no
1: not at all and that's the most exciting thing Mm. definitely not in Australia like the US and the UK by proximity is a lot closer there's a lot of Africans that do go to the US Australia has no idea like literally no one talks about Africa and I think that's the exciting thing because people haven't got onto it yet and I still feel like we're an early adopter Mm. But I'm so glad that we've picked up on this now. The timing's good for us. Governments have an appetite for it. And so it's just the next few years is just going to be incredible.
0: Fascinating. So thanks for your time today. But just one final question before we wrap up. You mentioned that, you know, it seems like Dom's a fantastic mentor for you. But if you could pick one mentor, who would it be? Easy question. Yeah.
1: Do you follow Premier League football at all? I do a little bit, yeah. So, I'm a Liverpool supporter. Yeah. So, if I could have dinner with anyone, it'd be Jurgen Klopp. I wouldn't ask him anything about football. Mm. I would just want to know how that guy gets a whole of 30 different people with egos. Mm. Remember, these, these are footballers getting paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. Yeah. How does he manage people? because he can bring this group of people together that are so united, that will do anything for him, that will play together. And they've all got these massive egos because they're the best of the best. Yeah, I just love to understand how he manages people, how he runs that organization. He would be an amazing CEO because what he's doing is probably even harder. I would just want to pick his brain about that for hours.
0: Yeah, great answer. Thanks so much for your time today. It was a pleasure chatting to you.
1: Thanks, Jesse.